This is PsychOut, your podcast exploring the human mind and the foundations of human behavior. This is your host, Bert Castleman, and in today's episode, we are going to be discussing the memory, what it is, how memories are formed, how they are stored, and how they are recalled. The memory is really important to humans. If you can't remember what you've learned before, you can't utilize it. If you can't remember what went wrong before, you can't avoid mistakes. You cannot make any progress if you cannot remember. And this process of memory has fascinated scientists and especially teachers a lot. You try to teach your students something and unless they can retain this information, they won't be able to use it in their lives and take it with them for a lifetime. Now the process of memory needs to go through certain stages and there needs to be an input. The input comes into the brain where it is encoded. The encoding happens in a way that the brain understands. It's encoded in a way that it can be stored. Storage happens within the brain, sometimes for a lifetime, sometimes for mere seconds. And then once it's been stored, the brain must have the ability to retrieve this information, to use it, update it and store it again. After lots and lots of study, several people have come up with models of how this memory might work. We are going to look at a few of these models and how they shape the way that we think about the memory. Atkinson and Schifrin created their own model of how the memory might work. They called this the multi-store model of memory. They believed that an environmental input comes into the sensory registers that could be visual, auditory, touch, taste and smell. These sensory registers would take this information, place it within the short-term memory, which is a temporary working memory, and there, through certain control processes, like rehearsals, could be stored into the long-term memory where it could be permanently stored until it could be used again. Then through certain retrieval strategies, that could be recalled out of the stored memory and then that recalled memory would be called the response output. We are going to look at that first phase where the environmental input meets the sensory registers. The senses are our gateway to the world. Without them, we have no idea what's happening. Your sight, touch, taste, smell and hearing all contribute to your understanding of what the world is like, what is happening and what you need to do. Now the sensory memory is this place with brief storage of incoming sensory information and it has unlimited capacity because it only stays in the sensory memory for milliseconds before it's passed on to the working memory or the short-term memory to actually work out what needs to happen. Each of the senses have some memory stores. We are going to focus on the sensory memory stores 
of the visual system and the auditory system. The visual system is called the iconic memory and the auditory system is called the echoic memory. Both of these only last for a small amount of time. The iconic memory lasts for only 0.3 seconds and the echoic memory for 3 to 4 seconds. So you can see that auditory memories last much longer than visual memories called iconic memories. Now they have different forms of encoding and they both fade very rapidly. In order to explore them a little more in detail, we're going to start talking about the iconic memory. The iconic memory consists of visual stimuli that enter the mind. Icon is from the Greek word meaning image. Iconic memory lasts for only that 0.3 seconds, and this explains why we can see moving pictures from a series of still shots projected onto a moving screen. We are still storing the image of one still shot when it's replaced by the next frame, so the illusion of movement is created. That is why when you watch movies, they actually have frames that run through, and that works exactly the same way that the brain works with the iconic memory. Now, it seems like people with reading disorders, like dyslexia, have a little bit of a problem with that iconic memory, and that iconic memory may last a little bit too long for them to be able to read all the words in order correctly. Echoic memory lasts slightly longer than the iconic memory. It lasts about 3 to 4 seconds. Now, this gives rise to a phenomenon that you've experienced before. Someone says something to you, and then it feels like you didn't hear what they were saying, and you say, uh, sorry, can you say that again? But then you immediately start answering the question. That little delay is because the auditory information sat in the echoic memory for that three to four seconds before the working memory started working on it. Now, the iconic and the echoic memory are essential to be able to process the information that needs to go into the working memory so that we can make sense of the world and store that important information. The information from the sensors that travel through the sensory memory get passed onto the short-term memory and this is where a lot of the first processing happens before the information can be stored. The short-term memory is a special store of memory that sits between the sensory memory and the long-term memory. Now, sometimes as sensory information enters the short-term memory, it needs to be processed and passed on to the long-term memory. Sometimes when information from the long-term memory is recalled, it needs to be kept in the short-term memory for a short while before it is used. Now, this store receives this information but one of its limits is that it has a very limited capacity of five to nine pieces of information and a duration of approximately 12 to 20 seconds. Because of this sometimes you find it very hard to remember something for long enough. Can you imagine if you've got a number if the code comes through on your mobile phone that you have to enter into the internet 321 you would quickly go 321, and then put it in. This is called maintenance rehearsal. 
if we rehearse something over and over again, we put it back into the short-term memory over and over again, and that helps us keep it right there for as long as we need it before it goes missing. If information is deemed important, that gets passed onto the long-term memory where it is stored permanently. If it is not important, it is immediately discarded and the brain won't be able to remember it anymore. The long-term memory is incredible. How many times have you spoken to an elderly person and they tell you a detailed memory from their childhood? That could be a memory that was embedded over 70 years ago and is recalled with absolute clarity. How incredible is that? If emotions are connected to memories, they embed much better. If we look at the system of human memory, first sensory memories come into the mind. They last for less than a second sometimes. Then short-term memories would last for less than a minute, but long-term memories can last for a lifetime. These long-term memories could be grouped into two types. Explicit memories, which are conscious memories, things that you remember, E equals MC squared, or implicit memories, information that is unconscious. You may listen to a song on the radio and be singing the words without really thinking that you need to recall it. We are going to look at explicit and implicit memory in a little bit more depth. Explicit memories are conscious memories. These are really important declarative memories so that you can declare the facts of your life. You declare the facts of your experiences, who you are, where you're from. All these declarative memories basically shape who you are. The semantic memory is a part of the declarative memory. And the semantic memory consists of all the facts and figures that you have about your life and the things that you remember. Formulas in mathematics, what your address is, what your phone number is. All of these have meaning and therefore they are semantic memories. But then you have episodic memories. The time that your sibling hit you in the head and you will never forget that or forgive it. The memory of your uncle and auntie getting married. Maybe the memory of your first kiss. All of these are called episodic memories. So on the one side, you've got your semantic memories full of facts and figures about your life, but also the episodic memories, which are the memories of the little videos that play in your head of things that happened in your life. Now, there is also implicit memory, which are procedural memories. These are the orders of things that happen. So you don't think about how to brush your teeth. That happens automatically because these procedural memories have been stored in your brain and you can actually brush your teeth while thinking about other things. You don't have to be conscious about it because the unconscious takes over and does the procedure as you want. Now, making coffee could be a procedural memory for you as part of the implicit memory because you do it without even thinking you've done it so many times. And they said, it's easy like riding a bike. Now, 
Riding a bike is only easy because it's been stored in your procedural memory. These procedural memories are mostly stored in the cerebellum of the brain, and that is why they are easily accessed, come back, and automatically take over. Now, at this stage, it's very important to just quickly reflect on what we've done. We have explicit memories, which are declarative, and you have semantic memories, which are facts and figures, and episodic memories, which are the events of your life. And then you have implicit memories, they are unconscious, and they are all the procedures of things that you have to do, like brushing your teeth. Most scientists would agree that you have a sensory memory, a short-term memory, and a long-term memory. But exactly how they work? Now, there's a lot of debate. We're going to have a look at two different theories and models on how the memory might work. In the 1970s, Alan Badley and Graham Hitch started doing research on the memory. They tried to work out how it worked and found that there were different parts of memory rather than just one whole system. They divided it into two parts, fluid systems and crystallized systems. Crystallized systems were in the long-term memory and fluid systems in the short-term working memory. Now, they divided it into different groups in the fluid system they would say there's a central executive that runs the whole system, a visuospatial sketch pad that deals with visual information and spatial information, an episodic buffer, which is like a video system that remembers what is happening as a video in the moment. And then there's a phonological loop, which remembers what is being said and the sounds that are coming into the system, which is then connected on the same levels into the deeper memory. Let's have a look at these different parts of the working memory. The central executive functions very much as a component of working memory that's responsible for switching attention from task to task, deciding what material is to be retrieved from or committed to long-term memory, and for performing calculations and making linkages. Now, it puts together sound, vision, working memory, and controls our attention, which enables us to perform mental manipulation of data. The three main functions of the central executive have been identified as inhibition, switching, and updating. Inhibition is an aspect of attention that is screening out irrelevant material. Switching, which is changing attention from one thing to another, and then updating, which is modifying items brought in from the long-term memory before recommitting them to memory through the episodic buffer, creating a process of accommodation of the semantic network. So the central executive is basically the system that runs and brings together all the different aspects of the working memory in order to update, focus, and bring memory together so that it actually functions as a whole. The central executive manages the phonological loop, which is a storage system for auditory information in the working memory. Now, this auditory information is stored and it is kept for only a short time so that we understand what is happening. This is the store that helps us to understand a sentence of more than a few words. It retains the words from the beginning of the sentence until we have heard the words at the end. Then there's also the visual spatial sketch pad 
which is the storage system for visual information in the working memory. Um, this system is a store we use to help picture, for example, what a room would look like if we shifted the furniture around. Then, of course, there's the episodic buffer. This episodic buffer is a theoretical component of the working memory, and it acts as both a bridge and a filter for the auditory and visual information between the long-term memory and the central executive and the storage components in working memory. So it's almost like a video system that connects to the long-term memory so that you can place the episodes of your life, what is happening, into the correct context. The levels of processing model of memory is not just a unified system that was developed by one group, but actually successive research by people like Craig and Lockhart, Talving, Rogers, Simon and Johnson. All these people did amazing research to try and work out how people remember better. And what they found is that when people associated what they're learning with something that they already knew or felt very emotive about, they remembered things much better. Now they realized that there were three levels at which people processed, and that's why it's the levels of processing model, or LOP, as it's commonly called. The first and shallowest level of understanding is structural. Now imagine this, a child is starting to learn to read, and they look at the letters, P-O-T-A-T-O. They can work out what the structure is of the word, but the shallow understanding does not really give them an understanding what it is. It's just looking at the structure. It's the shallowest level of processing. But then a deeper level of processing would be phonemic processing. This is now where you start using the sounds. Words are learned by sound, and this is a moderate level of processing. So imagine that same word, instead of P-O-T-A-T-O, -T -O, now the sounds are used. P-O-T-A-T-O, potato. This level of processing is now used for approximately 50% of the words they can be recalled after there's phonemic encoding. So the moment that you start using the sounds rather than just the structure, better encoding. The research suggests actually that the deepest level of encoding happens when it is semantic. The words are encoded by their meaning, which allows them to be placed directly in our semantic networks. So now when someone sees P-O-T-A-T-O or hears the sound P-O-T-A-T-O, immediately that is connected to all the memories of potato and fries and chips and all the things you've ever encountered with a potato. And once that semantic meaning has been given, 80% of or more of the words are retrieved through semantic encoding. So here are the three levels of the levels of processing model. First, structural, which is just the shape of a word. Phonemic, which are the sounds of the word. And then semantic, which entails that you understand the meaning of the word. And once you get to the semantic level, the 
memory actually processes it much better and it is much more likely to go into the long-term memory because it starts creating that puzzle that connects the words, the sounds and the structure to what the word actually means. In this episode, we looked at the duration and capacity of sensory memory, including iconic and echoic memory, short-term and long-term memory. We looked at two different models of memory, the one by Badley and Hitch, about the working memory, and then the levels of processing model of memory. We also looked at how long-term memories are stored with regards to implicit and explicit memories, including procedural, episodic, and semantic memory. In our next episode, we are going to look at brain structures and how they influence memory. We're going to discuss the difference between recall, recognition, and relearning, and we'll look at some really important skills that you can use to make your memory better. Until next time.